service to him. Because after all, we were made new in Christ for the express purpose of good works that glorify Jesus. We looked briefly at Ephesians 2.10 a few weeks ago. That's the last verse we read from the open passage of Scripture we read this morning. And let me read it in a few different versions. In the NIV it says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The New Living says, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so that we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. The New American Standard says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you also remember our key text from that second Sunday of the new year, Revelation chapter 21 verse 5, says, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. One of the important things we noted about that verse, especially as it relates to our passage for today, is that God says these words. He says, I am making, or I make. These are God's words, His declaration. God makes. He's the one who makes all things new. He's the author of, and perfecter of our faith, as Scripture tells us. He's the one who makes all things new. So our job is to walk in, to live in, what he has already made new in us as his children. If we respond to his grace at work in us as he desires, we can only respond in gratitude by walking out the things, by doing the things that he desires of us. The idea here is very clear. We are made new. We are created in Christ Jesus. But his love for us is not the only reason that he makes us new. Though he does love us, though we are his workmanship, we're made for a reason. We're made for a purpose. That's our focus this morning. Why were we created? Why were we made new in Christ? We were created for good works. Ephesians 2.10 tells us. We were created for good works. These good works ultimately glorify God. Paul makes it clear in this verse from Ephesians that God has already set in place the things that we are to do. He's paved the way. He's laid the groundwork. He's blazed the trail. We only have to walk it out. We must walk the walk that is laid out before us. We are made who we are we're made the way we are. We're given the unique gifts and personalities that all of us have, some of us a little more unique than others. And we're born again in Christ with specific things that God has prepared in advance for us to do. We're to do these things for no other reason than this. Just because we're believers. Just because we are followers of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Just because, as he wrote to the Ephesians in the passage we read a moment ago, just because he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? So that, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward, Christ, toward us in Christ Jesus. This is why we were given these good works that he has prepared in advance for us to do so that we will glorify him in eternity. Let me give you an example. There are things I do because I'm a guy. 
Because I'm a guy, I must hold the television remote in my hand while I watch TV, especially when sports are on. There's more than one game, you know. Because I'm a guy, I, if I lock my keys in the car and I fiddle with the wire clothes hanger and ignore your suggestions that we call road service until long after hypothermia has set in. Because I'm a guy, when I catch a cold, I need someone, I need someone to bring me soup to take care of me while I lie in bed and moan. Of course, you never get as sick as I do, so for you this may not be an issue. Because I'm a guy, I can be relied upon to purchase basic groceries at the store, like milk or bread or red meat or root beer or Pop-Tarts. You know, the basic food groups, right? I cannot, as a guy, I cannot be expected to find exotic items like cumin or tofu or anything that's gluten-free. For all I know, these are all the same thing anyway. Because I'm a guy, I don't think we're all that lost on our way to somewhere. And no, I do not think that we should stop and ask someone, why would you listen to a complete stranger? How in the world is he going to know where we're going? Because I'm a guy, whatever you got your mother for Mother's Day is okay. And no, I don't need to see it. Oh, by the way, did you remember to pick up something for me to give to my mother? Because I'm a guy, you don't have to ask me if I like the movie. Chances are, if you're crying at the end of it, I didn't. <laughs> because I'm a guy, I think what you're wearing is fine. I thought you were wearing five minutes ago was fine. Either pair of shoes is fine. With, a, with the belt or without the belt. It looks fine. Your hair is fine. You look fine. Can we just go now? Now, I'm picking on guys in general here for the purposes of illustration because I'm also smart enough to know that if I repeated a similar list for the females among us, then I'd really get myself in trouble. But the point here is this. Isn't it true that a lot of behavior of men can be explained by the simple phrase, it's because I'm a guy? Sometimes that just seems to say it all, doesn't it? Many stereotypes, isn't it true that many stereotypes are based on something that's true, at least in part. That's why they're stereotypes. It's just as true that a lot of things we do as Christians, whether it be in the workplace, at home, or at school, should be explainable by the phrase, it's because I'm a follower of Christ. It's because I've been made new in Christ. It's because God prepared these good works in advance for me to do. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? That's why Amy Thorpe is already working on the VBS that doesn't even happen until June. It's why Charlene and the Shepherds and Jody and others are at Kendall Whittier each Thursday for Good News Club. It's why Karen Shupak is here at church so many hours serving our youth, putting energy into leading the puppet team. It's why Gordon subjects himself to strange intestinal diseases on his overseas and domestic travels. It's why Linda Steed, who, my goodness, is retirement age, is now leading an international ministry to equip believers around the world in serving kids with special needs. It's why Hallett and Jason Lawrence and Jim Grinnell and Tom and Hazel and Beth and Jim Downing and both Thorpe and sometimes others are here 90 minutes early on Sunday mornings practicing worship and they're preparing throughout the week. It's why Randy and Deanna Harrison left their Tulsa home 
45 years ago to serve in places, three of which they had to leave quickly because there was a revolution. None of these things I've mentioned. And you know, I could look around the room and I could go on for quite a while. But none of these things result in any significant temporal world benefits for these people. In some cases, really many cases, these people get no income at all from their service. And those who do earn some income from these works don't come close to getting rich off of these things. But that's not why they do it. That's not why they do it. They do it because they've sought God, they've listened for His voice in His Word, they've stayed close to Him in right relationship with Him, and they've heard God say, this is the work, or this is one of the works that I have for you. Now walk in it. Walk in it. This is what I plan for you to do on this day and in this time in human history now. Just follow the path I've set before you. They do it because they're followers of Christ. Just like most men don't usually read directions because, well, they're guys. Wouldn't it be nice if most Christians were stereotyped for their good works rather than some of the things that some Christians are sometimes stereotyped for? In our passage this morning, we see Paul discussing how sinners, and that's clearly what he's describing in the early verses of Ephesians chapter 2 here, as in verse 3, all of us also lived among them, those who were disobedient, he's referring to, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature, we were by nature children or objects of wrath. But Paul is showing us here how we sinners who deserve nothing but the wrath of God can become examples. We can become even trophies of his grace, glorifying him. In verses 1 to 3, we see what unbelievers are like before God transforms them, before he makes them new in Christ. Then in the verses following, we see how God's grace, his unmerited, his undeserved favor and love towards us gives us life, raises us up with Christ, makes us new creations in him. And then the last verse of this passage that we're focusing on this morning, verse 10, tells why. We see the word for. In other words, why does God do all this that we've just read in those first nine verses? It says for, meaning because of this, or pay attention, or here's why. For we are his workmanship. We, renewed in Christ, are his work of art. We are useful works of art. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. But why are we created new in Christ? To do good works. Out of gratitude for his wonderful grace. With thanksgiving because he's changed us from objects of wrath, from disobedient people, from sinful people who were dead in our old stagnant life of sin, to people who are made new in Christ. God has designed and prepared and equipped all of us who are in Christ to do good works. He's even prepared the specific good works we are to do. He's given us unique giftings and personalities. He's given us, each of us, a unique sphere of influence. We prayed for Dave Troutman this morning. Dave will touch lives that I'll never have an opportunity to impact. Uh, Jason Feather's good works can reach people I'll never meet. 
What we must do is walk in these good works. We must live them out. That's what Paul's encouraging us to do this morning. One commentary said about this passage in the clause which God prepared in advance for us to do, the word which refers back to the works in the previous clause. For us to do is literally in order that we might walk in them. The purpose of these prepared in advance works is not to work in them, but to walk in them. In other words, God has prepared a path of good works for believers, which he will perform in and through them as they walk by faith. This does not mean doing a work for God. Instead, it is God performing his work in and through believers. That takes the pressure off of us a little bit, but it also puts the pressure on that we are to walk in these things. Believers are God's workmanship in whom and through whom he performs good works. Some of you may have heard of the prayer of St. Francis, though it was actually attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. He never actually wrote it. It first appeared in a French publication in 1912. I heard it as a song growing up in the Catholic Church, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace was the name of the song. Have you heard, some of you have heard of that, that song? Okay. There's also a version of it written by the late Christian singer Rich Mullins. But the original version goes like this, and it reflects in many ways what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Make me an instrument. The Lord has made us an instrument. That's the idea here. God makes the tool, the instrument, he makes it useful, and he provides the ways in which this tool will be used. William MacDonald wrote this. It's kind of lengthy, but it's worth it. Stick with me for a minute here. The object of this new creation is found in the phrase, for good works. While it is true that we are not saved by good works, it is equally true that we are saved for good works. Good works are not the root, but the fruit. We do not work in order to be saved, but because we are saved. This is the aspect of the truth that is emphasized in James chapter 2. When James says that faith without works is dead, he does not mean that we are saved by faith plus works, but by the kind of faith that results in a life of good works. Works prove the reality of our faith. Paul heartily agrees we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So God prepares us for good works. He prepares good works for us to perform, and then he rewards us when we perform them. This is his grace at work in our life. Isn't that a marvelous way to think about what God is doing here in those of us who are in Christ? It's as if I teach my grandson to ride a bike, and then I buy a bike for him to ride, and then I take him to a nice place to ride it, and then I give him a dollar for not falling off. And riding well. Well, you know, that's not the best analogy. How can we possibly unpack all the things that we're looking at? It doesn't come close to revealing the kind of grace God exhibits. But the idea is that it's God preparing us, 
God preparing the good works, and then God rewarding us in eternity for us doing the good works which he prepared. Wow, what a deal. Another way to recognize that we're created for good works is to look at a life where there's no service or there's no good works. Lots of receiving, perhaps, but no giving. The life that's not rich in good works. The life in which there's no outflow of the good things of God's grace. There's no real spiritual life without good works, without service. A good illustration of this is the Dead Sea. All the rivers in the area flow to the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is continually fed water from rivers and streams in the region coming down off the mountains that surround it. But the kicker is this, there's no rivers that drain out of the Dead Sea. The only way water gets out of the sea is through evaporation. Now this part of the world gets very hot, meaning there's lots of evaporation. And when the water evaporates, it leaves behind all of the dissolved minerals in the sea, just making it saltier. In fact, through the dual action of continuing evaporation and minerals and salts carried into the sea from the local rivers, that makes the sea so salty. The fact that the water doesn't escape the sea, it just kind of traps the salts within its shores. Salt goes in, it doesn't flow out. Now, didn't Jesus say that we are the salt of the earth? Matthew 5.13. Isn't the implication in saying that we are the salt of the earth that we must pour out the saltiness of our lives for that salt to be useful. There's an old book on evangelism. Some of you may have read it years ago. I mean, we're talking 40 years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker. Staying in the salt shaker makes salt pretty useless. I'm not going to have my popcorn and just hold the salt shaker here and just look at it, right? I'm going to put it on popcorn. It means more than just being useless. It means being lifeless. Back to the Dead Sea analogy. The incredibly high salt concentration in the Dead Sea means a couple of things. First of all, you can actually float on it without a raft or a tube or floaties or anything. But it also means there's absolutely no plant life or marine life, no fish, nothing. They can't live there. It's called the Dead Sea because nothing can live in it. One devotional says this, there are believers who seem lifeless and unproductive in their Christian lives. Such individuals are like the Dead Sea. They have several inlets but no outlets. To be vibrant and useful believers, we must not only take it all in, all we can, but we must also give out in service to others. Now with this kind of clear picture of good works in Scripture, this is pretty clear, I think. You'd think that no church, no ministry, would ever have any difficulty finding the people resources to accomplish a task for the kingdom of God. After all, who wants to be a dead sea, right? When you understand it this way. Who wants to leave good works that are already prepared for them to do undone? Yet, I would encourage you to speak with anybody who's ever worked in any ministry, any nonprofit agency, anyone who depends on people volunteering to do various tasks, you'll discover the same thing. It's very difficult. Very difficult to find people willing to serve, people who are faithful and dependable, people who are faithful because they know that they were created for good works. In most churches, in most ministries, 20% of the people do 90% of the work. Why is this? Why is this? Why do we 
shirk this responsibility we have to walk out what God has already given us to do. Let's look to Moses for part of the answer. God had good works for Moses to walk in, right? Just a simple little thing, serve as God's instrument to deliver millions of Jews from bondage in Egypt, right? Piece of cake, huh? How could Moses possibly object? Let's look for a moment at Exodus chapter 3, starting with verse 10. First we see Moses, I'm sorry, first we see God revealing to Moses the good work that he had for Moses to do. And uh, cha uh, chapter 3, verse 10, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my Israelites out of Egypt. And then we see the first excuse from Moses. Now at first glance, it might look like humility. But as we go on, we see clearly it's just the first of many excuses for not serving in the role that God has given him. Because verse 11 says, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So Moses' first excuse that we see here is who? Little old me? Little old me? You want little old me to do this? The next thing we see is in verses 13 and 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am sent me to you. So our second excuse is, by what authority? Or says who? Then Moses gets into one we can all relate to when it comes to excuses, the what ifs. We're good at that one too. Jumping down to chapter 4, verse 1. Moses answered, what if they do not believe me or listen to me and say the Lord did not appear to you? Now, our what-ifs might include some other kinds of things, such as what if I get sick? What if my kids get sick? What if I lose my job? What if I can't fit it into my schedule? What if, what if, what if, what if? We're good at that. Then we see the wonderful excuse, but Lord, I don't speak well. That is, I'm not equipped to do this. I hear this a lot especially when I'm recruiting to somebody uh, to speak and serve in a fifth Sunday service. So thank you, Christine Doe and Andrew Thorpe and Karen Shupak for stepping out of your comfort zone to serve in our fifth Sunday a few weeks ago. I didn't mention Halleck because he's up here a lot anyway. Exodus 4.10, Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. It might be fun sometimes if somebody when I was recruiting them for a fifth Sunday, they said, I'm sorry, Bill, I, th I can't. I'm slow of speech and tongue. At least I'll have a biblical excuse. And finally, we see another very popular excuse in Exodus 4:13. Moses said, oh, Lord, please send someone else to do it. In other words, no, not me. Let's remember that God did not ask Moses to use something he didn't have. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 2, God asked Moses, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? The point is God promises to use what we have and does not demand of us what we do not have. We will never know the full picture of what God can do through us until we are willing to offer ourselves to him. God's not looking for ability. He's looking for availability. God's not looking for ability. He's looking for us to be available to him. God equips. 
We've learned that, right, this morning. God appoints, God chooses, God provides. So if we've heard from God what Moses heard, that is, we've heard, go, do this, whatever this is. Excuses don't matter because of what it says in our text today. God prepares these works in advance for us to do. If he has prepared these works in advance for us to do, then he's also equipped us with all we need to do it. Let me deal with probably today's most popular excuse, and we all use it because it's true of all of us. I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Well, let me just say that busyness is not an excuse. Now, I don't want to be harsh here because I do believe that you are just as responsible to steward, to manage your time, so you and your money and your offerings, your giftings, your time, it is okay to say no, okay? So let me preface my remarks with that. But you know what? We're all busy. We're all busy. We all have full lives, perhaps more so than at any time in human history. The most important question isn't whether or not you are busy, it's are you busy doing the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do? I can't decide that for you. I can help you process it maybe. Your brothers and sisters in Christ can help you process that. But the context of this next verse is financial, but of course the works of service often include our financial service too. 2 Corinthians 9.8 God will generously provide all you need then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So again, the context is financial of this. But if God's providing all we need, so we'll have all we need and plenty left over to share with others. Is it too much of a stretch to say that he can do that with our time too? Yet that's only true if we're using our financial, our material, our time and energy resources for his purposes. And we've chosen to seek and then to do the good works that he has prepared for each of us to do. Also, we can't underestimate a key element here, the word of God. We read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, a very familiar scripture, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. But then we see something important. We see another one of those four kind of things. So that Okay, so it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training, so that, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The ongoing purpose of God's word at work in our lives is not just the knowledge of the truth. It is that, okay? It is that, but there's more. It's to equip us to do good works. When we know God's word, it's part of what he uses to make us thoroughly equipped for every good work. God has a blueprint for your life and for my life. Before we were born, he already wrote the spiritual career for each of us. Our responsibility is discerning his will and obeying it. When we rest in his plans, when we rest in his purposes, we don't have to worry that we'll bring glory to him. We will glorify him in the good works he has prepared for us, and we will be a blessing to others. In order to find out the good works he has planned for our individual lives, we should, first of all, confess and forsake sin as soon as we are conscious of it in our lives. Second, we should be continually and unconditionally 
yielded to him. Third, we should study the word of God to discern his will and then do whatever he tells us to do. Number four, we should spend time in prayer each day. Number five, we should seize opportunities of service as they arise. Number six, we should cultivate the fellowship and counsel of other Christians. You know, this is all pretty basic stuff, isn't it? This is the, we, we, we might look at that list and say, th- these, this is an outline of the spiritual disciplines that we preach about, that we talk about, that we've all been steeped in here at TCF for most of our Christian lives. So all this relates back to what we heard some weeks ago. It's about making us new in our attitude. It's about making us new in devotion. And the result is, with new attitudes, with new devotion, we are eager to do good. And that's God making us new in service. Titus chapter 2, beginning with verse 11, says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. Are we his very own people? Are we eager to do good? And why are we eager to do good? It's all for his glory, my brothers and sisters. It's about glorifying the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who redeemed us. It's to display his love. It's to display his grace. We read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, let your good deeds shine out for all to see. Why is that? Do I want, why do I want my good deeds to shine for all to see? Is it to glorify me? No. So that, there we see that phrase again. Let me read the whole verse again. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Not so that everybody will praise me. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse uh, 12, Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. Even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will believe and give honor to God. They'll give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. It's all about his glory, my brothers and sisters. It's all about his honor. It's all about his praise. Let me just for a moment get very practical in advance of closing this morning. We're all busy, but are we busy doing the right things? If God has prepared these things for us in advance, most of us, we don't have to be like that pioneer missionary who seemingly creates a ministry from scratch. We can often connect to things that God's already doing. He may motivate or convict some of you to find one or more of these things as your place of service, the good works that you were created for. I'd like to close with a passage from Revelation beginning with uh, chapter 19, verse 5. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, 
was given her to wear, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Did you catch that last phrase? And that's in the text. That's not a commentary. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. We Christians are the bride of Christ referred to here in this passage in Revelation. And this passage makes it clear that the righteous acts, the good works, the works that as we've seen God prepared in advance for us to do, that's what we do. We do as followers of Jesus. These things are the fine linen that adorns the church. Isn't that a great visual image of what our good works will be in eternity in the throne room of God? They're a part of what brings praise and honor and glory to our God. So I'm asking us this morning to consider as we close in the context of our understanding that we were created for good works. What garments are you putting on the bride? And how can the Lord make you, make us new in service to him? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you, Father, that you redeemed us, not just so that we didn't have to spend eternity apart from you, but that we would have the privilege and fulfill the responsibility of doing good works that bring glory to your name. We pray, Heavenly Father, that each of us would find those good works, that you would lead us very clearly that we would know your word, that we would uh, pray, Father God, and that we would be willing and we would be available servants of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords as we seek to do service to you, to bring glory and honor and praise to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. In Jesus' name, amen.